0: This week, we tackle misconceptions about human trafficking and Indigenous women being trafficked in Nova Scotia. I'm Rachel Dial, a journalism student at the University of King's College, and this is Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about Migma people, politics, land, and water. This is episode 216, made possible with listener support. Become a patron at patreon.com forward slash MiGMA matters. Canada defines human trafficking as recruiting, transporting, or holding victims for exploitation purposes, such as sexual purposes or for work. There are many ways traffickers can coerce and manipulate their victims into being trafficked. Human trafficking does not necessarily involve people crossing borders. It can happen locally and to anyone in your community. A report by the Canadian Centre to End Human Trafficking said Indigenous victims and survivors of human trafficking are more likely to be targeted after travelling to cities for medical appointments or employment opportunities. In unfamiliar urban areas, these Indigenous women may be targeted by traffickers or engage in survival sex to meet their needs, such as access to food and shelter. Heidi Marshall is one of the founding members of the Jane Paul Indigenous Resource Center in Sydney, a center dedicated to helping indigenous women and men who are at risk of experiencing homelessness, poverty, and trafficking. We spoke with her about human trafficking in Nova Scotia and the extra risks facing Mi'kmaq women. Thank you so much for joining us today, Heidi. Before we do get started, uh, please share your role at the Jane Paul Indigenous Resource Center in Sydney, as well as the Nova Scotia Native Women's Association.
1: Oh, okay. So for women that are being trafficked right now, the Jane Paul Indigenous Women's Resource Center opened its door in 2015. You know, and and so that's located in Sydney, Nova Scotia right now. And and like, and so the center is an an initiative of the Nova Scotia Native Women's Association. And the organization was formed by Mi'kmaq women and men who recognize a need for a meeting place for young women and young girls. The center provides a safe place for women and girls to come. It provides protection, resources, supports, referral services, traditional practices in a non-judgmental environment. So its mandate is really to provide a safe place for high risk and vulnerable women and ultimately help end the violence against indigenous women within this area. We still have a lot of work to do. The center went through many trials and tribulations and one of the biggest challenges that they've had since 2015 was funding sustainable funding. So the doors were opening and closing and there was no consistency because we were only getting short-term projects and stuff like that. So I commend the current executive of the Nova Scotia Native Women's Association who has made the Jane Paul Center its priority. And it's now has stable funding and it has created many partnerships, to provide stable and culturally relevant programs and services for our women.
0: A report by the Native Women's Association in Canada published in 2018 said that Indigenous women only make up for 4% of the population, yet roughly 50% of those trafficked are Indigenous. Why is this in your opinion?
1: I think the biggest factor here is that the effects of colonization, the effects of the Indian Act, especially where women um, were ostracized from their communities and lost their status when they married A non-native person. So I think that's one of the biggest contributing factors with respect to um, people living officer, women living officer, not being able to um, come back into their communities if their marriages broke down or anything like that. I also think another biggest factor is being ostracized from their communities. Women that are living high-risk lifestyles And um, forced into street prostitution, you know, like there's like a lot of migration patterns and things like that for these women is one of the biggest factors and not being able to participate in community events, community cultural protocols and things like that. And, And being off the reserve and being away from their families is a really, really huge factor.
0: For people who kind of have the assumption that, you know, Halifax isn't that big of a city compared to Toronto or or Ottawa, you know, and it, so it really shouldn't have issues like human trafficking. Can you tell our listeners about what's going on uh, in Halifax and Nova Scotia with regards to human trafficking for those who just might not be aware?
1: Our Ilno women, which are Mi'kmaq women, we call them Ilnu, when they're banned from their communities or feel they can't go back to their communities because they feel shame. And due to their involvement with the law, street work, or losing their children to children's services, often they have nowhere to turn but the streets of Halifax, or to bring it closer to home from Sydney or or different rural areas. You know, the homelessness issue is something that needs to be addressed by not only the provincial and federal governments, but but by our First Nations communities as well. You know, it's not only Halifax that has a human trafficking problem, but other communities as well as Sydney, Yarmouth. And other communities where there have, you know, where, where there is a big abundance of fishing. There's a lot of men in those areas with respect to, you know, commercialized fishing. You know, there's the boats, there's the, you know, like that that are coming in. There's, you know, workers that are coming in. So that's another big thing. So, you know, so although Halifax is one of the at-risk cities, our women are being trafficked and at and, and risk in smaller areas where it's hidden more. And so we don't see it, you know, as much, you know, the city center is a place where our women run to. So they can hide and not be seen by family members or community members.
0: To listeners who may not know how human trafficking works, could you just kind of give an explanation of how people do end up being trafficked?
1: So in most situations, girls or boys or women are being groomed, as we know, by someone who is either close to them or or placed on their addictions. You know, they, they trust this person with their whole life. And this groomer buys some expensive things or just buys some drugs or gets them hooked on drugs. You know, trafficking can happen at a local level where your groomer is your boyfriend making you do drug runs, isolating you from your family and getting you hooked on drugs. No one is immune from human trafficking. No family and no community. It could happen to anybody. And, 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 and also I found at, at a more local level, a lot of it is survival sex as well. Sexual exploitation, you know. People that's a little bit different, as you know, from trafficking, but from a small town community, you know, your boyfriend that can be your trafficker is sending you out there to, um, um, to to go sell yourself for his drug habit, you know, so there's so your boyfriend can be your trafficker, you know, it may not be like big time trafficking where you're you know, being sent all over Canada or whatever it could happen. It's 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 more localized as well.
0: We don't usually hear about men being trafficked uh, mm. in the media or just in general because of the stigma surrounding that uh, particular uh, issue. On average, how many men have you uh, helped with regards to trafficking?
1: Well, I, I don't. Um, I don't know if I said that I dealt with men, but I did help some men with respect to being like even. Um, at risk of being trafficked, you know, and okay. so I think what has to happen is that with respect to even men and boys, a lot of the men and boys are, are like, say, for instance, if, if they're LGBTQ plus two or anything like that within our communities, they're hiding. And, you know, and, and, and so we need, you know, they're in the closet or shame, you know, so it takes a lot of times even for our elders and for our communities to accept these, you know, these individuals, and and I think we are moving forward. And we've, you know, we've come a long way in that respect. But you know, but you know, but but they're hiding their sexual preferences, and they're, and they're going out to like, unsafe areas, to, you know, to to meet their, you know, hookups or whatever, If, if they're, working on the streets, or they're just hooking up with someone. Same as our women, you know, like, like, if they're trying to clean the streets up, say in Sydney, or Halifax, they have to go to unsafe places, you know, because the cops are there, like it's, you know, they're walking the beach. So they're not going to the main areas anymore. Are these the most common scenarios that you do deal with when women do come to your organization for help? Um, both, both, I would say. And a lot of them are, are like, it's hidden, they won't admit it. But you know, from their lifestyle, Well, I'm going to go see my boyfriend. And I've dealt with women who have been trafficked, who were missing, and then we found them, you know. And so I know that, you know, like there was just an incident in Halifax, for instance, just recently with with Marley, when Marley was missing, you know, so so that um, really had an, an impact on all of us, you know, so when you look at the situation of when people fit that profile, there's not much out there like with with respect to media. You know, like I want to give you a comparison of um, Loretta Saunders versus Marley. Marley was just a woman missing in Halifax just recently, a young Indigenous woman. Loretta Saunders was an educated woman. She was doing her master's, doing her thesis. She was blonde. She was beautiful. She didn't fit the profile. So the approach to finding her was a lot different. Then Marley, Marley, I don't remember her last name. Was a woman from Eskasoni dealing with mental health issues. Looked brown, looked Indigenous. Fit the profile of homelessness, work in the streets. Fit that profile, and so we had to go out a lot and and look for her as ourselves. And it wasn't it wasn't given very much news media, and not taking any from um anything away from Loretta Saunders. Like we were all in a very bad time and Loretta Saunders was you know, murdered him, and she was found. We all, you know, were devastated over that. You know, but, you know, but, I, but at the same time, she didn't fit that profile.
0: What solutions do you suggest, I guess, for media outlets to cover these stories better?
1: Well, well I think, for instance, for um, for one thing, they need to do their education. They need to be educated on Indigenous issues, you know, and not try to, um, you know, I know, for instance, like, I know that they tried to get a story out of me, but I'm just too afraid to be that spokesperson because my biggest thing is to keep the woman safe. And so I think that they need to reach out to the parents, they need to reach out to, you know, to people like that in order to not have it sensationalized, you know? And then and so we need to do more culturally um relevant, even like Crime Stoppers um pictures and you know things like that. And I don't and it's really difficult, for instance, for like like a person that was trafficked formerly, and now they're asked to be a poster child for that, that gives that that puts them at high risk, you know, and you know, from the trafficker, from, from from, you know, just in case she's being held by someone against her will, and she's missing, you know, what is police response to this? Because I think, you know, um, it goes deeper than media as well. I think the police response has not been good, of course, you know, I know, like, in, like, like, at the Jane Paul Center in Sydney right now, We have a great relationship with the human trafficking police, you know, so, but that's only one officer. That's not the whole system in itself. You know, we have to look at the whole system, right? And not just um local police or Halifax police or whatever you know you may have the best officer in the world but he can't change that system right and, and they need to look at the recommendations and the calls for justice in the MMIWG look at those recommendations and start implementing those recommendations you know I know from a local level I can speak highly of the human trafficking police officer But at that higher level, like, how do we get the women to trust them? Like, you know, they don't want to arrest them and things like that. How do we, you know, we need a different approach for sure. You know, I I know that the police need to do better service because all the inquiries in Canada have led to racism within the system. I can't deny that. You know, that's there, of course, 100%. What is one of the biggest
0: misconceptions about human trafficking, in your opinion?
1: That people are taken on boats, being trafficked out of the country a cartel-style type of mentality. But it happens here, and I've seen it. You know, it's, it should, like, it, like people have have it more sensationalized, you know, like the movie Taken or anything like that. That's a huge misconception. I've seen it where young girls, you know, were doing drug runs for their boyfriends. They're considered their boyfriends, you know? You know, and, and these girls are being either hooked on drugs by them, and it's their boyfriend, and the only way oh they're even being trafficked. From jail or groomed from jail, you know, where their groomer is in jail and and they're still being contacted by the groomer and they're still doing, providing, you know, services or whatever. Or, and so, you know, I think that, you know, people involved in street prostitution are at really high risk for this or addicted to drugs, homelessness, you know, and and another thing, like, like another big target area is the homeless shelters and also the group homes for when kids are aging out of um, child welfare. You know, the, the groomers have people going in there and grooming these young kids. So youth group homes is a big place where traffickers are targeting.
0: Do a lot of Indigenous youth come to your organization for
1: help? In the or? center, 100%. Yes, we have young girls that are living in homeless shelters that are coming to our to our center for, for any type of services, for food, for shelter, for counseling, for looking for um, apartments, you know. What's you the know, youngest you know? age that's ever come? I would say 15, maybe younger.
0: Why do traffickers target younger women?
1: Because of their vulnerability, you know, you know because these with these girls, you know, like, like, like they want to be loved.
0: How can people go about helping those who they know are currently being trafficked, who are so young and so vulnerable
1: at that age? Reach out to them. That's all I say, try never to lose contact. If you know someone or, you know, someone at risk or, you know, or if it's your child or your grandchild or anyone, you know, try never to lose contact with someone who you think is being trafficked. It's, you know, if it's your son or daughter, try to keep that connection with them. Don't say, well, I'm going to give up on this person. I don't want them to come around anymore. That's that's going to really put them in, in a higher risk situation. Make sure that they trust you when they have nowhere to turn. Make sure that, you know, that you keep that connection with that child, with that young person, you know, because you're going to notice they're not at family functions, you're going to notice they're not in the community, and if they can contact you, like, for instance, they're going to say, oh, I'm going to cut their phone off. But if they're not selling their phones yet, keep that connection. You know, like, like, like if the groomer still allows them to have a phone, keep that connection. Make sure that's there. You always try to find them. You always try to reach out and make sure that they can come home. That's so important. If they think they can't come home or if they're scared to contact you, You know, because I know now at the center, um, we can probably find a girl uh, quicker than the police can. So I've got texts from women or like, you know, like, I don't have a work phone yet, but I got not texts, like inboxes from women who ping me their location, like say in the Waterford. This was in the middle of the night though. Unfortunately, I was sleeping, my phone is off. And so that to me scares me. You know, eventually sometime if we get a little bit bigger, some shift work, some out, some street outreach is necessary.
0: What usually is parent? response when
1: their child is being trafficked to your knowledge I think they're given up a lot of people have tried and tried and tried like I like I read like a, like a lot of parents reach out to me right now and just say well you know I, I just say well try to keep that connection they say well they sell their phone I said well by the minutes you know I said, if you, you know, like if they're in Sydney or something, throw them in my mailbox. They can pick up the minutes in my mailbox, you know. So sometimes I know you need a lot of boundaries, you know. But I think that you need to also make sure that um, that you have that connection, you know. And sometimes I know that it's difficult with mental illness, with addictions, and you know, we've seen you know women die on the streets or because they, you know. So I think it's really important to try to establish that non-judgmental trust. And it's a difficult job. It's a hard job. You know, you take it home with you. It's hard to establish boundaries because you don't know what to do, right? You know, we had clients where they were supposed to go to court against a trafficker and the next or or against a, a a so-called boyfriend. You know, and the next day you go to their houses and they're not found because they don't want to go to court. You know? And there's hinges, their door the hinges are off and you know, just stuff like that, right? So I think we need to have like, um, more programs as well and more services for younger people like, and, and for people that don't trust your systems, your regular systems. We can have like Mi'kmaq legal support. We can have health centers in the community. But our women don't trust these systems because we have failed them ourselves. As a community, we have failed our women and our young girls. So they're not going to trust our health centers. They're not going to trust our nurses in the community, they're not going to trust our court workers or our our child welfare workers. They have no one. And people forget that, you know, have programs where you just play our people like to play cards. You know, you don't need a fancy program to get these women in. Make sure you have sandwiches for them. If people are coming in, making a sandwich for themselves, that space is their space. When a girl or woman or um, boy decides
0: that they want to leave their trafficker, how do you address this so that they can leave safely?
1: That's very uh, that's a very, very difficult question, as you know yourself. We need to develop some exit strategies. I know that because you know, when you're thinking about it, they're scared for one thing. They're making a lot, they're making more money than they make at McDonald's. You know, so those are things you know, we need to provide more programs and services, we need to provide more support, but how do you do that? You know. Those are things that, you know, what do we do? We need to, uh, you know, come to some recognition that um, that human that trafficking exists in Nova Scotia for one thing. And we need to develop, on, develop some strategies and not focus on like the Western provinces or anywhere like that, you know. Our communities need to be more active for one thing in addressing sexual exploitation of our women and our girls and our boys. We need more um culturally specific programs and services we need to be more accepting we need to give these women and boys a sense of belonging within their their own communities like more talking to kids in school and giving them the hardline realities of this you know you know work with police more you know but i think it doesn't only have to be us i think the whole system needs to change. We we need to look at racism, we need to look at poverty, and we need to look at the other underlying factors like colonization, for one thing, you know, those are so, you know, we like we need to ensure that ongoing intergenerational impacts of Indian residential school of any colonial practices are addressed by the government, you know, and I think that I mean, I've been I've been in this, you know, I'm 60 years old. I've been here doing this all my life, is advocacy work. Uh,
0: another thing I wanted to know, though, um, because we're talking about all the factors that do play into to human trafficking, mm-hmm. was COVID one of these factors that heightened?
1: Tra- 100%. You know, when you look at COVID, like as far as like the use of phones, the use of the internet, the black web, everything like that, I know... I forget the stats, but I know from I'm working on human trafficking strategy right now and I'm talking to communities and know but so talking to youth, talking to men. The youth know a lot with respect to, you know, human trade. So I think there was a lot of stuff done on the web. And I know that a lot of the websites really blew up with respect to like the gaming and stuff. I had it had, a, it had a huge, huge effect. Huge. You know, and now, and even though COVID has provided our communities with funding and stuff, things are going to dry up. Things are going to get worse again.
0: Why do you say that, mind me asking?
1: Because, because funding is going to be cut off. Like, you have COVID relief fund for communities for, you know. And I just look at, like, if the, if the government is able to pro- was able to provide every single Canadian with CERB funding, it's almost like a guaranteed income supplement. We can get rid of poverty. But now they're cutting people off, you know? So things are going to get bad before they become bad before they get better. If there's anyone listening right
0: now who is caught in human trafficking or who knows someone who is, you know, caught up in human trafficking, what advice do you have for them?
1: Like I said, like we need to, uh, like I said before, reach out to them. You know, we need to reach out to them, make sure that you keep that trust with them, you keep that relationship with them, you know, you make sure. That you you know, and if you, like we have to try to um start even like I know it's that it, it's a risk, but but you know, but but we have to start calling out these groomers. We have to start calling out these gangs and these people that are getting our kids hooked up on drugs and stuff like that. You know, we have to start calling them out. And I know that it's a very fine line when you look at um, look at the homeless shelters and look at say Halifax. You have like out of the cold, you know this um this you know this organization those are really 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 targets for human trafficking but it's a fine line because i really appreciate the great work that everyone's doing but how do we keep the traffickers out how do we keep our women safe our children safe what do we do do we need more trafficking police do we need more street watch do we you know things like that. how do we do that you know and and be legal and respected and you know work in partnerships with the police and we need to create that yes i do we I do have a great relationship with the human trafficking police in um in sydney here but maybe the girls don't but we do as an organization because they think they're going to be arrested Police need to do more community policing like that come to the center just visit us mm-hmm. you know trying to make sure trying to keep these women safe you know and I know, and try to, um, they're, like, like, they're not going to rat on their traffickers, 100%. We know that already, you know? And so we just got to make sure, you know, that they know that they can come to us, that they know that the center is there for them.
0: You mentioned that traffickers are getting into homeless shelters and finding women there. And these homeless shelters, are they aware of this?
1: I would say not you know like especially if there's someone a young girl living on the street are they going to turn them away or someone that's portraying and they're like recruiting younger girls for you know to be trafficked
0: if they were where would things change would that change things Mm,
1: not very much (laughs) it's still going to be out there You're, you're, you're going to help maybe maybe keep women or girls in that shelter safe if you know to try to fend them off and they're going to meet them outside they're going to it's a it's a tough tough call right it's a hard hard hardcore core system to break you know Hardcore, you know like it's really difficult for the you know we need they need support they need guidance I know people you know that are out of traffic and now that are that are working it takes a long time you know Sometimes I know, like I'm not, I've been in this business for a little while. Sometimes I know their john's even straightened them out. You know, if it's their john, you know, they could be still seeing their john and the john may have helped them get out, get out of trafficking.
0: Have you ever encountered a situation where a woman has come to the organization for help, but their trafficker um, was aware of this and has kind of held them back
1: or? 100%, all the time, 100% always we've always had to deal with that situation we still do have to deal with a situation where their boyfriend or whoever their trafficker is waiting outside the center for them so it's a safety issue for all of us you know yes we've had people there weren't yes we we just had we have we have we have cameras there now and we were closed one day and I saw someone like kicking the doors and banging on the doors probably looking for their girlfriend or whoever you know and I know that you know so yes, we've had situations like that where we had to go find women. We had to go get women. I've done. I don't know about now lately, but in the past, um, I've. I like we've got women that were out of that were being held against their will. We've got them out of situations that they came out without any shoes on, any jacket on, nothing. You know. So I want. I always try to keep the staff safe. That's so important. And any volunteer is safe, right? It's a it's not an easy job. And that's why I make sure that people are there. Like, you know, you can't work there alone. We have women that are on the streets, off the streets now that got their children back that are, have homes now that have jobs now. You know, there's some that even have a car now when, you know, and are, you know, and so we've, we've had success. What kind of solutions do
0: you suggest going forward to combat this issue?
1: Well, well, I think the, the, there there has to be more education, for one thing, on all parts, Not only for the non-native society, but for indigenous societies as well. We need to understand um, the effects of uh, colonial practices that had that have on our women. Like, for instance, when they lose their children to um, child welfare, you know, and and then some, and, you know, and then some of the um, policies of the reserve. If you lose your children, then you lose your house. So where do they have to go? So a lot of um, our leadership also within our communities need to be educated. You know, like, like, like it took me many, many years of work with these women to be able to understand their plight, understanding that, you know, that they don't want to be judged and they're tired of being judged. You know, they can't come back to their communities and they really are lack of trust is one thing. We have to reach out to these women. More so ourselves, right? And we have to provide opportunities, you know, where our women can be safe. Opportunities and supports, more networking, you know. And so we have to deal with the historical injustices of the Indian Act, the child welfare systems.
0: Again, Heidi, I do want to thank you for joining our podcast today and speaking about this topic uh, for our
1: listeners. And that's it for the program. Alison Baker is the producer of Mi'kmaq Matters.
0: Rachel Dial is our researcher. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. I'm Glenn Wheeler, Amsterdam.